Is change something that happens to you or does it happen for you? That's a very different concept that will have you thinking about how to ride the tides of change in your business. Welcome to Disrupt Yourself Live with Whitney Johnson. Our program will have you looking at change from an entirely new perspective, a framework in which you and your team can not only face an ongoing and rapidly changing environment, but look forward to it and maximize it for business success. Now, here's your host, Whitney Johnson. Hi, everyone. My name is Whitney Johnson. Welcome to Disrupt Yourself Live. We all know change is necessary even desirable. In fact, we know it's inevitable. But when change happens fast, which it usually does, it can feel like it's happening to us and not for us, which can feel kind of scary. What I've learned, having been an equity analyst on Wall Street and then co-founding an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, is that the theory of disruption that we apply to products also applies to people. Which, by the way, this theory states that your odds of success are six times higher and your revenue 20 times greater when you pursue a disruptive course. I've since spent the last five years codifying and researching a seven-point framework of personal disruption so that whether you're scaling a business, building a team, or just trying to manage your own career, you've got a structure to do this. What we'll be exploring on this show is how do you know when it's time to disrupt yourself and when you do, how do you disrupt yourself successfully? In today's episode, we will be discussing the first of the seven points of this framework of personal disruption, which is learning to take the right kinds of risks. In order to manage through change, you will need to take risks, but not all risks are created equal. We all tend to take on competitive risk, for example, when we're actually much better taking on market risk. So competitive risk in your career and life looks kind of like this. There's this big job, huge opportunity. You just have to figure out if compared to the 10, 15, 20 other people who are applying for that job, you can compete and win. So there's an opportunity for you, but there's lots and lots of competition. Market risk is you don't know if there's a job, but there's a problem that needs to be solved. You think you can solve it. After all, a significant percentage of the jobs that will exist in 10 years don't yet exist. If you can create the market or the opportunity, there's no competition. So guess who's going to get the job? This is where the six times higher and the 20 times greater comes in. When you play where no one else is playing, when you take on market risk, the opportunity to make a mark personally in your career, in your business is six times higher. To explore these ideas in greater depth, we have two fantastic guests today. Our first is Angela Ruggiero. She's a four-time Olympian in ice hockey, member of the Olympic Committee, and the founder and CEO of Sports Innovation Lab. Welcome, Angela. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, let's start off by hearing some of your story. How did you get interested in hockey? I, I know it's a long time ago, but what what made you want to play? Yeah, uh, I was very lucky, actually. My uh, father signed me up when I was seven. Uh, my brother was six at the time. My sister was eight. Um, he originally signed up my brother thinking, you know, boys play hockey, and I don't think girls would be interested in this. But when he went to the rink in Southern California, they had uh, basically a family discount for the more kids you bring in. So he said, <laughs> you know what? It'd be fun to, to ask my mom, and, and they, they agreed it would be a great family sport. Um, so they signed up all three of us, and uh, match made in heaven. I loved it from, from day one, really. Huh. 
So did your brother and sister continue to play or was it just you? Yeah, no, my brother went on to play uh, semi-professional hockey, played over in Europe and, and played junior hockey and, you know, really made a career out of hockey as well. Um, my sister only played a couple of years, didn't, you know, wasn't in love with it, but was super supportive. Um, but yeah, it was my brother and myself and my dad really uh, driving many, many miles in Southern California back in the, the 80s and 90s. <laughs> hmm. Well, so Wayne Gretzky, probably one of the most, if not the most famous hockey player ever, said skate, or paraphrasing, skate to where the puck is going, not to where it's been. This sounds to me a lot like taking on market risk of playing where no one else is playing. So what did this look like for you on a meta level in terms of your hockey career? Yeah, so I I always think of that. It's, um, you know, some people used to say, you don't look like you're trying out there on the ice, Angela. I'm like, it's because I'm in the right position. (laughs) You know, I Ah. wasn't scrambling on the ice to follow the puck per se. I was positioning myself because I knew the puck was where, where that player was going to be or where the puck was going to be. And as a, a defensive player, um, you know, playing, a, you know, a decade and a half on, you know, at the Olympic level, um, I just got smarter through time. And, and towards the end of my career, um, it was that. It was um, going to where you know your opponents will be before they know they're going to be there. Um, going to where the puck will be. Um, and being able to read and react to those angles um, in advance. So, yeah, in, in sports, obviously, it's a great metaphor to market uh, the markets or disruption or really understanding where um, trends occur. And, um, you know, on the ice, it was, it was just uh, learning the game, whatever game that is that you're playing. And, and for me, it was um, simplifying things in a way. You, you sort of get pattern recognition um, and and can quickly understand where trends are occurring or where um, where where you should be on the ice. So in some ways, it was like you were playing chess on the ice. Absolutely, it's hockey's a game of angles, and um, it's you know the the angles the 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 dimensions don't move, but the play is is different every single game, every single period. You can't predict where the puck is going to be or. Um, but the, the lines don't move, the rules don't move, so to speak. So yes, absolutely game of chess. And like I said, people say, you're, you're not trying. I go, well, I'm in the right spot. So they're gonna, you know, I know they're going to dump the puck or I know that I'm going to force them to go wide cause I'm positioned more on the inside. And that was, you know, me sort of controlling the play versus having the play control me. Do you remember when you first figured that out, what you were doing? Um, I mean, were you... Were, were you 10 when this was happening? When you were, were you 14 when you started to realize that you were thinking really very, you know, about the mental game of what you were doing? Yeah, I would say, you know, when you're younger, your brain doesn't really work that effectively. <laughs> you're, you're having fun out there and you're learning the rules. But probably by my teens, um, I really started, and with good coaching, um, started to realize by simply moving the angle of my stick I could better predict where a forward would try to go on the ice. I could basically push them in a direction by changing their line of sight, their angles. And um, yeah, it it sort of culminated in high school for sure and led me to my first Olympics in 98. Um, You know, I was the youngest player on that, that gold medal winning team in 98. So it was a lot of support around me to like call out those angles. Um, But a lot of like just repetition, honestly, getting on the ice and, and seeing it for yourself. 
Have you studied physics? I mean, you're talking about angles a lot, or not physics, but geometry, I guess I should say. Yeah, and again, I mean, of course I took it, but you learn it, you learn angles in, in, in sport, you and, and, you know, intuitively learn them, um, again, through pattern recognition. But, uh, the, again, the dimensions on the ice don't move, um, but you can control the flow of the game. And especially as a, as a defense person, um, how many times do I have, you know, forwards coming into the zone? And I'm def- I know where my goalie partner is or my, my goalie is. I know where my D partner is. And you're literally, uh, you know, you're in your head playing playing chess, you have, uh, you know, 10 players on the ice, two goalies, and you're constantly looking around. And um, it's bad now that I retired, I drive. And so I, I'm always doing the same thing with traffic. And I'm like, I need to be a little more cautious. <laughs> driving. But, uh, but I, I think in my head, I've developed this, like, y- you're, you're scanning the environment all the time. And, and you're, you're, intuitively predicting flow and movement um, and because and, I did that for so long. Wait, so what kind of driver are you? You now have me very curious. <laughs> well, I, because I, you could, you would know your, uh, your skates and the puck and the stick within millimeters when you're playing at that level. You know exactly where everything is. You don't have to look down at the puck. You look up, you can see it in your peripheral or, or you don't even have to look at it. You know it's there. You can touch it and feel it. Um, so you get to know literally the, the, the most minute pieces of sport and angles and where with precision, where your D partner stick is going to be, or, you know, an angle of, you know, they say in football, the quarterback's throwing the puck or the the ball ahead. It was the same thing in, in, in hockey. You, You knew when a forward was crossing over the, the right speed and velocity, um, or you'd have to bank the puck off the boards to go hit that player to get around. So you're always doing these sort of mental jostling. And yeah, when I drive now, I've, so I've, when you drive, you're, well, now you're I drive, I'm probably like, a- I'm like, it's organized chaos. I'm like, the, the hardest <laughs> thing to drive is when people are unpredictable and slamming on their brakes. I'm like, just keep going at the right flow. I can predict when I can move into the next lane. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so what's the, what's the best team you've ever played on? And what, I guess, more importantly, what felt different about that team? Um, I mean, obviously, the gold medal winning Olympic team. <laughs> you can't really mm-hmm. beat, uh, beat performing at your highest level individually and collectively while the entire world is watching when there's an enormous amount of pressure and um, a lot on the line. And, you know, and I played on many, I played on four Olympic teams um, and saw, you know, successes and I saw failures and I played on several world championship winning team and and losing teams. And um, to me, the biggest defining feature is um, the ability to play together, but Mm -hmm. knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are uh, really individually and what your roles are and, and, and you know, sort of executing on something that you all believe in. Um, Because there's a lot of, at the Olympic level, you know, at any elite level, there's a lot of superstars and being able to know what your sort of swim lanes are, um, who's, who's doing what role and, and owning that and feeling really proud about that is, is something hard. um, You know, it's really hard to do, but when you do it well, it's, it's amazing the power of, you know, a team. So what part of it's hard? So is it is it so is it hard to be willing to stay in your swim lane? Is it hard to keep your ego in check? What what part of it would you say was the hardest part? 
Yeah, I think it's first just knowing what your swim lane is, knowing mm-hmm. what people's strengths to relative to their weaknesses are and being, being um, open about that. Um, and, uh, and so just knowing where to put people, um, I think it's, it's uh, checking your ego again at the elite level. You all want to score the game winning goal, but if you had 20 mm-hmm. goal scorers, they're going to, you know, your defense isn't going to be very good. Um, so, you know, making sure that people are on board for that vision knowing how they can contribute to that vision, um, what their swim lanes are, and then be willing to execute on it and not change course midway through because you're, you know, not supporting um, the role that you're playing. And so it's, mm. uh, it's, it's first knowing where you're going to go. I think there's, I see a lot of really, you know, in sports, it's easy, win the championship. In life, I think it's a bit harder you know, defining where you want to go, I think is always the hardest part, but the most important thing. Um, And then, you know, surrounding yourself with the people that can contribute to that success, knowing that they're different roles and different types of people that you need to be successful. And and in execution, I think is that, you know, the last part. Can you think of a moment where you found that you, well, before I go there, let me ask you this. When someone says to you, what's your swim lane? Like, what are you the best at? What do you say? It, what, are you, what are you talking about, hockey or life? Or hockey. My, my we we're not, we're not going to okay. go to life yet. We're, we're going to stay with your hockey yeah. first. And then after the break, we're going to go to your life. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my job on the ice was to protect my goalie, to support my forwards. I would jump in, you know, I'd play offense. I was kind of like the Bobby Orr in women's hockey. I'd love to jump into the play and be offensive-minded. Um, but at the core, it was protect the defensive zone and work with whoever my defensive partner was to do that as well as possible. Um, I did that with strength and speed, uh, a lot of strength, a lot of sort of more intimidation, more angles, knowing my angles, being in the right place, um, and really working in partnership. Um, and obviously, um, you know, showing confidence on the ice, I think was a big role that I had to play with my team. Because uh, if I was confident in, you know, defending our zone, our forwards could be more confident taking risks up front. Um, So part of it was actually, you know, performing on the ice. And part of it was just making everyone around me feel secure in the fact that, you know, we're going to get this thing done. Interesting. Interesting. So um, you, you just mentioned some, okay. So before we go there, I'd love to hear, um, you mentioned for a moment about failure, how there were some times that you didn't perform as well as other times. And I think this is something that a lot of people really struggle with. Can you think of a time where you didn't perform well and how you, what kind of sort of mental exercise you go through when something doesn't go the way you think it should go? Um, you're obviously been very resilient. So what's, what's the calculus that you go through to bounce back when something doesn't work? Um, I think it's all in the attitude, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing failure as a means to get better. I hmm. love it. I love saying, look, we failed. And in, in, in the, the, you know, as soon as you can pick yourself back up and say, this is an opportunity to learn. This is an opportunity to watch game tape. You know, in sports, you have that analogy. You literally watch game tape and go, what did I do well? What did I not do well? Usually you're not watching it to say like, oh, look at that pass. That was a great pass. It's more, you didn't do a good job here. You didn't do a good job there. Um, 
and coming up with recommendations with your coach or your teammates to do it better the next time. So we have the advantage, I think, in sports of retrospectively, like literally analyzing our game. And I think in life it's hard because you have to pause in the moment when you're, when you've failed and, and visualize almost what you did right or wrong or, or pause to, you know, consider all the different, you know, variables that went into that, that, that predicament um, that led to failure. Um, And I think we tend to gloss over on failure. We just, Mm -hmm. you know, we tend to reflect a lot when we succeed and justify our actions as opposed to when (laughs) we, you know, when we, when we fail and, you know, it's easy to, to put the blame on others or easy to not consider all the variables, just be selective in the variables. And in sports, because you literally have game tape, you can't get around it. You, you look at that performance and, you know, oh, look, Angela was in the wrong spot here. Her stick was in the bad position. She, she wasn't swivel headed. Oh, she missed her player. It's your fault. And, and it's okay in sports to call that out. It's okay for your coach mm-hmm. to say, Angela, you, you messed up here. Look, they scored a goal. Um, yeah. And in life, that's a lot harder. Your boss may not have all the facts. Your teammates, you know, may not be privy to the same information. Um, your, or your coworkers. Um, and again, as society, we tend to celebrate success and very, you know, I don't see this happen often where you, you literally criticize uh, failure, but I see failure is honestly the best way to learn and get better. And that's what I did my whole career. I was always looking for what could I do better? And that I think is what really helped me um, have such a long career. Yeah, so after the break, I'm going to ask you one more question on failure. Is your proudest moment of bouncing back from mm. a failure? Perfect. Um, and so I'm going to give you a minute to think about it. Um, everyone, thank you for tuning in. We'll be right back after our commercial spot and talking more with Angela Ruggiero, four-time Olympian turned successful entrepreneur. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want more of personal disruption? Whitney Johnson's book, Disrupt Yourself, which the Boston Globe described as the what color is your parachute career guide of today, is available wherever books are sold. If you're wondering how to apply these ideas to build a team that can manage through change, her new book, Build an A-Team, published by Harvard Business Press, is now available for pre-order. In the meantime, you can hear more in-depth interviews with disruptors at WhitneyJohnson.com. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Ritas is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. By 2025, the global life sciences market will have changed dramatically from the industry we know today. Patients are becoming more proactive and focused on wellness. 
Healthcare providers, payers, and producers are exploring ways to collaborate across the digital health sciences network to reduce costs while improving patient safety and care quality. How will you remain relevant? Tune in on the Voice America Business Channel for Changing the Game in Life Sciences, presented by SAP. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. To reach Whitney Johnson with a question or comment about the show, please send your email to wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Now, back to Disrupt Yourself Live. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Angela Ruggiero, Olympic gold medalist in hockey and now CEO of the Sports Innovation Lab. Before we went to break, I asked Angela to share with all of us her moment of failure and the biggest bounce back from that and and what she learned and what happened next. Angela, we'd love to hear. Yeah, thanks. Um, Yeah, I was just thinking about it. Uh, It has to be the 2008 World Championships. Uh, We played, uh, we basically lost in a crossover match, which meant if we lost the next game, um, we would not even be playing for a medal. And uh, this came after winning a bronze uh, in 2006, which was a disappointment to us. Um, It was also sort of three or four years since we had won a major championship. And I was close to it. Honestly, went through my head when we lost that game. I'm like, I'm done. I I can't keep, Mm. I can't, I remember sitting in the locker room with my head like leaned over going, I'm putting my entire life on hold to play hockey. And we can't even beat a team that we should easily beat. And um, and then looking around the room at everyone else, so under that same head down, you know, just it was a really hard moment. I think in the in the spectrum of USA hockey, um, and a and a pivotal point for us. We could again, we hadn't won in years, and and we you know we were going to play Canada. We hadn't beaten in four years, literally we hadn't beaten them in a game. So it was a it, it it was a really pivotal point, and I remember going home that night, and I didn't see anything in the locker room. I was just I was depressed, honestly. I, I'm like, how did this happen? How do we even get ourselves in this position? And 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 kind of waking up and going like, this is this sports is a mental game, hmm. and if we turn this failure into something else, if we pointed out our weakness, which everyone was saying, oh, we're too young, we're too, you know, we don't know hockey, and and made and and convinced everyone that that was our biggest strength, then we could beat Canada. And that's what we did, honestly. I rallied sort of our teammates, um, sort of the leaders of the team, and said, this is the plan. And we did this sort of, we brought the team together uh, the, the following night and got and literally convinced everyone we were the better team in our heads when I knew on paper, we were not. (laughs) And we came out, I've never seen, I've literally to this day, never seen such a energetic group of people and Canada had no idea what, and this was a preliminary, this is game didn't matter to them because they were going to play in the final regardless, but it mattered like everything to us. And they, 
we, st- we didn't even sit the entire game. I mean, that was how much energy we had on the bench and ended up winning that game and it put us into the, the final, which we went on to win by a goal. And it just completely changed the tide for our program. Um, but I just think to the locker room where everyone's heads were in their laps and we were like in this such this dark spot and it took us to mentally convince ourselves that we could succeed as a team and and really believe it, not just to say it and sort of, oh, this is, you know, a bunch of words, but literally believe that our, our biggest, quote unquote, weakness was our biggest strength. And, um, and I'll never forget that. It just showed to me the power of the mind and the power of, you know, coming together and checking your egos again and, and believing in, in something that everyone else probably thought was impossible. How did you get yourself to believe that? Did you do visualization? Like, what did you, I mean, because we all, it's easy to say, I made myself believe that. Do you remember what you did to to allow your mind to actually start to believe that, that it was true so that it could become true? Yeah, so um, in my head, <laughs> I didn't really believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually think that our our youth was our biggest asset, but I'm like, but if the majority of the team believes that their mm-hmm. age and their their energy and their legs and their power is then they've then three quarters of the people on the ice are going to feel invincible. And I said, Mm -hmm. collectively, then we're going to be better as a team. And I really believed in that. So the, so honestly, the, the, the exercise wasn't necessarily me um, in that instance or the leadership, it was convincing the people we relied on, which is the, you know, the majority, the, 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 the younger players. And again, if three quarters of the team, these sort of rookies could believe in themselves as mm. opposed to being intimidated, then I knew at that point I was all in. I knew. And when I saw them actually believing, I saw them, you know, at the end of this sort of team building exercise, I, I, my, then I was convinced. I'm like, mm. this is the team that's going to win tomorrow. Um, and so it was, it was almost, um, Believing in others is what convinced mm. me. It was it mm. wasn't Angela saying, I'm gonna go do this on my own, which would have been impossible. We wouldn't have won. You know, even if the 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 veterans out there put them, you know, we're gonna put the team on our shoulders and, and run through the wall. No, 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 no. This is a team sport again. It was it was working with everyone and having everyone buy in. Um mm. so I'll never forget that. So powerful. And I and and the power of the leadership of you didn't quite believe it yet, but you you instilled in the rest of the team a belief in themselves and then you were able to come along with them. So so you go on and when you do finally to decide to retire from hockey, it's a high point, not a low point. Um now you're personally playing where you haven't played. You played hockey your entire life. Um how did that feel and what did you do next? Yeah, it was, uh, it was tricky. Um, I was, you know, I played 16 years on the national team, loving every minute, but just knew, knew that it had to come to an end, unfortunately. And it's sort of, you know, if you built one career, it's like you're, you're starting new in your next career. You're not taking that job and moving to the next job within a sort of defined career. You're, you're literally starting over. And a lot of athletes, I think, struggle through depression or struggle through trying to self-identity. And, and, and I was, you know, I definitely had some of that. What, what next? What do I do? I, I achieve success on the field. What do I do off the field? Um, but there was also this excitement of, I, I can do anything. I don't mm. have, I'm not just confined to 
where my ice rink is going to be sort of location wise or even time wise. I suddenly have all the time in the world. I can do anything. And it was, it's actually incredibly exciting for me. So um, I actually went back to um, Harvard business school and got my MBA and I really wanted to use a couple of years to um, explore all the opportunities um, that existed and, and knew I'd stay in the sports sector. Um, but, but business school definitely sort of opened my aperture in terms of, um, of what was out there, um, and gave me some sort of, a, a, a more of a, a skill set that I thought would be helpful, um, in whatever I did next. So it was terrifying, but exciting at the same time. Well, and it sounds like maybe this idea of playing chess on the ice, it was, it was a skill that you had developed. And so now you were off the ice, but you could still play chess. And what would that look like with, with the skills that you had? And so you've now founded or you're the CEO and founder of the Sports Innovation Lab. Tell us how you got that idea and what is it that you do with this company? Sure, sure. So yeah, my aha moment, I had spent, you know, um, I think six or seven years at this point on the International Olympic Committee. I was on the board of the U.S. Olympic Committee. i worked in sports. I'd spent, you know, internationally, I was played sports, obviously, but really looking at it from uh, the business of sports side. And I kept coming against this problem, which there's, there's no one helping me make decisions when it comes to technology. And we all know how technology is disrupting every business and the sports industry isn't immune to that. Um, and, you know, people are scratching their heads trying to stay relevant and uh, athletes want to perform better with tech and sponsors want to better connect to their consumers with tech and media is now, you know, there's all these new distribution forms and, um, and new content created because of tech and they're just venues are changing. And I just kept seeing it over and over and over. And uh, my business partner, Josh Walker, who worked at a research company um, and built software uh, several times for different companies, we came together and I saw a need in the market and he saw a way to basically create, products and services that would match that need. And so um, I took a leap of faith, obviously leaving a well-paying job and sort of stability and all that um, after really identifying a pain point that existed um, and, and then essentially just betting on ourselves that we knew that the market, there was this great opportunity to, to, to service the sports industry. So we created basically, if you're familiar with like Four Star Gartner, the market research specifically targeted within uh, for the sports technology sector. Um, hmm. So helping IBM, Google, Intel, big companies as they deploy their tech into sports, really understand the sports um, segment. And then, you know, the leagues, teams, federations, um, et cetera, taking uh, advantage of an understanding of the tech that exists um, because they're scratching their head saying, I want to leverage it, I want to buy it, I want to use it, but I don't know w- what is good and what's bad. And um, so basically bridging the gap between the two industries. And we started the Sports Innovation Lab. Hmm. That's exciting. So how old is it now? A couple of years, two years? Yeah, we're uh, not even two years yet. We're going on two years. Um, but we've had 26 big companies um, from, again, Intel, Google, IBM, to the NBA, Canadian Olympic Committee, um, investors, um, a, a whole bunch of agencies, a bunch of established brands, basically, in the sports business ecosystem, um, leverage our information, our analysts, our technology. Um, and it's been incredibly exciting. Again, my whole career has been in sports. Uh, 
but to really drive a business solution now for the mm. industry and, and stand up a resource for um, industry experts um, in sports or tech that really um, want to be empowered through information. We're really standing up that analytical voice, that objective voice on the market and, and trying to help, again, leaders make better decisions at the end of the day. So this is a great example of playing where no one else is playing because this did not exist, right? Exactly. Yeah, you're taking a leap of faith and in, in, again in yourself and the idea and the opportunity. And um, but I but I believed in it. And I, you know, I was searching, I'm not going to lie for a while, like, you know, I keep I kept seeing this problem in my head. And, and it was having this conversation early on with my founders, like, there's a there, this is it, this will help. I'm convinced this kind of service, this kind of technology will actually materially impact the industry that I love. So that was that leap of faith. And uh, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly exciting to build a company, build the culture, you know, bring the right people in, all the things that I did as an athlete, um, building that team atmosphere um, in addition to the services that we provide. Well, so how would hockey, how would your hockey career be different today given the developments in technology? So, I know I'm just throwing that at you, but no, it's a good, you have to have thought question. of it. No, I mean, I was using sort of heart rate monitors as an example, right? When I retired now, there's, you can track your sleep on the performance side, your hydration. You could track, obviously your, your heart rate. You can, you can track a number of things through analytics. You're sort of, there's a lot of data coming off of athletes now. Um, and even without tracking, there's, there's geolocating there, you know, there's, cameras can now track where exactly where you are on the field and know how far you ran or how far you skated. And a lot of professional leagues are using player data um, at an increasing rate. So there's the performance side, but then there's also as an athlete, you were um, your own business, you're building your own brand. And late in my career, you know, I remember as the first people on Twitter, I was the, one of the first people that were like, Oh, I should use social media as a mechanism to connect to my fans. And now if you don't have social media, you don't have a business, you don't have a brand, you can't get sponsors. Mm. So understanding that ecosystem is vitally important as an athlete. Um, you know, considering your body is your business on the performance side and your, your brand is your business sort of on the PR and fan engagement side. So those are two sort of tangible examples that just on the athlete side alone, technology is really changing the way that they perform on and off the ice and, ultimately um, get paid. Hmm. So interesting. Um, any cutting edge developments that we're not aware of that you're, you think are really interesting and exciting that are just kind of just barely peeking above the horizon? Yeah, I mean, just as it relates to my company and what we just talked about, um, if you think about all this data now coming off of elite athletes, elite athletes in sports are really turning out to be the testing ground or proving ground for larger technology products for healthcare, right? Quantified athlete is really microcosm of quantified self. You can, there's less regulations in, in sports. You know, you here, wear this. Okay. Your coach says, wear it. And suddenly you're, you're basically giving away your, your medical data in a way, but the, the ultimate end, a lot of these companies are investing in that because of the healthcare market and the opportunity there. Um, mm. You could think about the same thing for, venues, smart venues is what we call them. As venues bring in, you know, 75, 100,000 people in one shot, you know, they're all on 
three different devices. They expect to be their ingress and egress to be great. You know, they, 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 they expect to be, have a wonderful experience. That's technology that's being deployed. There will actually power smart cities. So, Hmm. you know, high demand concentration of people all, you know, trying to build a sustainable venue with optimal speed for all your fan engagement tools, um, in a secure environment, that that is a smart city. I mean, so what we're seeing here so is sports is this awesome platform to test out new products, new services, and have a really great platform and story to tell um, that larger entities will actually value. And that's why a lot of people are actually getting into the sports tech space. Wow. So exciting. So I'm really, really thrilled for you and excited to see how this business develops. It sounds like you will definitely, okay, get ready for it. Get the gold medal with this business. (laughs) So if people want to find you, where should they go? So they can go on our website, uh, www.sportsilab.com. They can find me uh, at Angela Ruggiero, R-U-G-G-I-E-R-O, at, uh, that's my Twitter handle, it's just my name, um, or find us on Twitter. Um, yeah, ping me, send me a note, um, be fun to, uh, to, to follow. Thank you, Angela Ruggiero, former Olympic gold medalist, now CEO and founder of Sports Innovation Lab. After the break, we'll have Richie Norton, best-selling author of The Power of Starting Something Stupid. Thank you again, Angela. Thanks, Whitney. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want more of personal disruption? Whitney Johnson's book, Disrupt Yourself, which the Boston Globe described as the What Color Is Your Parachute career guide of today, is available wherever books are sold. If you're wondering how to apply these ideas to build a team that can manage through change, her new book, Build an A-Team, published by Harvard Business Press, is now available for pre-order. In the meantime, you can hear more in-depth interviews with disruptors at WhitneyJohnson.com. Today's innovative companies use SAP solutions to transform their business. On hashtag SAP Talks, your host, David Treitz, will introduce you to the people behind those companies, discuss how they resolve their most pressing business challenges, and share lessons learned. Tune in monthly to hashtag SAP Talks on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Serju Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
You are listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. To reach Whitney Johnson with a question or comment about the show, please send your email to wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Now back to Disrupt Yourself Live. Welcome back, everyone. This is Whitney Johnson with Disrupt Yourself Live. Our next guest is Richie Norton. He's the best-selling author of The Power of Starting Something Stupid. I hope I got your title. All right. It's been translated in, into over 10 languages about this book. Marketing guru Seth Godin said, Richie Norton has written a book about courage, the courage to do work that matters and do it with heart and your soul. Go, go make something happen. Richie's also the founder of Product, a company that helps you bring your stupid ideas to life. Welcome, Richie. Hey, thank you so much. Excited to be here. Appreciate it. Well, your life has been full of disruption. Um, will you tell us a little bit about one of your wake-up disruption moments? Yeah, let me just kind of take it from a personal side because it affects the business side. Um, my brother-in-law passed away at 21 in his sleep, and that just shook everything up. A few years later, my son died at only 76 days old. A little bit later, we had some foster kids, and then they left after two years, and that was hard. My wife had what we think might have been a stroke, and she lost her memory for a time, and that was disruptive. It was like thing after thing after thing. My son was hit by a car, almost died. So there's just been a lot of things on the outside that have you know, affected the inside, things that were outside of our control. You were saying <laughs> that you had all these wake-up calls with your brother and with your son and your wife, Natalie. And, um, and so what, what were the lessons learned because all of this happened? I learned that you might not be able to control your environment, but you can change how you react to these things and make the best of it and sometimes make something greater than you could have had the disruption not happened. So what was something that you did differently because of this experience with your with these many experiences, I should say? Sure. So, for example, we always think that... Um, you know, during the day we don't have enough time, but at the same time we think our life is going to be long. And it creates this weird paradox where we get nothing dur done during the day, um, and, but we think we're going to get a lot done later. But then later we end up actually still getting nothing done. <laughs> and so a lot of people look at their life with regret. And so I learned that we have to do those things that are most important, even the things that we think we won't be doing for a long time, maybe even in retirement. I've learned that we should do them now because we actually don't really have tomorrow. Fascinating. That's so interesting what you just said. We never think we have enough time, and yet we think we're going to have all the time in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating paradox. Okay, so what did you – so now that you've had this insight, what did you do differently? Is this when you wrote your book, The Power of Starting Something Stupid, or, 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 or let maybe back up? How did you get the idea for the book in the first place? Yeah, good question. So I had a mentor of mine almost throw out a challenge, and, and she said, how far will your influence go? And for some reason, to me, that meant write a book. And hmm. so you know, it needed to be, in my mind, a success book, a leadership book. At one point, it was going to be a book for teens you know, on how to like survive and thrive, those kinds of things. But I started getting into the research. I learned that People who are successful have started things. They just have. They start things. It was apparent mm -hmm. and almost inherent. And But then I started realizing it wasn't just something that they started. The ones, the innovators, they started something that someone once called stupid. 
stupid, you know, for our conversation is another word for being disruptive, for being innovative, for being inventive, because all the smart things are already done. <laughs> and so it actually mm. takes something stupid to start to do something new. Not that it's inherently ridiculously stupid, but that the outside world sees it as crazy and tells you not to do it, or you tell yourself you can't do it. But the people that have embraced that, everything from, I call it the three T's of stupidity, <laughs> everything from the Model T to the telephone to Twitter were incredibly stupid ideas that turned out to be great and changed the world in a number of ways. Yeah, so it's definitely when you do something stupid, you're playing where other people aren't, like you said, because the smart stuff has already been done. So will you share with us a little bit about how you applied these ideas? I, I know right after you graduated from college, you had this entrepreneurial idea. Um, tell us a little bit about that and some of the work that you've done with entrepreneurs to help them bring some of their stupid ideas to life. Yeah. Well, starting even even in college, I, I had this idea that I wanted to one day when I retire, help people in other countries work their way out of poverty. I wanted to end poverty. I lived in Brazil for some time. I saw a lot of poverty. It was just, it was a thing. And then I thought, well, why not? Why can't I do it now? So the next question was, well, how am I going to feed my family? I'm married. We just had a baby. You know, how is this going to happen? So I asked myself a better question. How can I basically, in general terms, save the world and also feed my family? How can I do both? <laughs> how can I do it right now and not wait? Because if I wait and I'm 25, it's going to take 40 years, basically two generations, to finally do the work I want to do. And if I have the ability to help people, it's going to take two generations for me to start because of my selfishness. That's kind of messed up. <laughs> oh, that's so, interesting. So you thought of it as being selfish when you you said it, it, by waiting, you felt like waiting for two generations, you framed that as selfish. And did that help you then say, okay, I'm going to start? Absolutely. And, huh. and, and because the reason it's selfish is we, 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 we can take care of ourselves and we should do all these things. But again, the question was, how can I help others and help myself at the same time? Why mm -hmm. not? Right? So there's no loss. And, you know, there's give and take. But I got my start. It's so weird. But I got my start in outer Mongolia. I met this family. They needed help in Mongolia. It was a weird situation. We ended up starting a cashmere company there to help them create um, jobs. And I called it self-reliance through self-employment. And that started uh, almost like a domino effect of ideas and situations where I went from one country, family in Mongolia, to other families in Papua New Guinea, Fiji, the Asia Pacific Rim. These are people I got to know in Hawaii. That got into coaching, consulting, writing books, doing speeches, and even starting that sourcing company that you mentioned at the beginning. Had I not started that idea and had that original question, how can I do it now and not wait until I'm you know, retired, I mm. wouldn't be talking to you right now. So what did the... Um what it, what was the kernel of that initial idea? So you said, I'm going to help people and feed my family. So you said you helped this entrepreneur in Mongolia. How did you help them specifically? What did you do? And, and, and yeah, let's start there. Sure. Well, first I wrote, I'm not a huge fan of business plans. I'm more a fan of action plans. But I wrote a business plan for my university saying, I want to help people and do it this way. 
and the business plan failed. They said, no, you don't have the details. You don't have the money. You don't have the experience. You don't have the time put in. Mm-hmm. And I said, screw you. I'm going to do it anyways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the competitive that. risk piece, right? <laughs> that's okay. right. That's right. Okay. So I actually went to another professor and said, well, hey, I know it's a good idea. I might not be the guy, but like, how are we going to do this? And they said, well, why don't we help you? So I got some mentoring. Mm. And and they actually introduced me to this family from Mongolia and said there was this person, this this amazing woman who won the business plan competition at the school a couple years earlier. She's already home in Mongolia, but she wants to start it. Why don't we start with her? And so it just so happened that she was coming to – I live in Hawaii. happened that she was moving – not moving, but coming to Hawaii to translate um, for something in the embassy. I met with her in Honolulu. We set this all up. I raised money from like my parents and from <laughs> random people. Friends and I, and right? And then I, I freaking flew to Mongolia. <laughs> and, and we just got this thing set up. I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to do it and I knew why. And because I started the idea and claimed the project and just said, this is going to help others, people came out of the woodwork to help me. Mm. And I learned faster, better, quicker doing than I could have ever done just researching and t- thinking about how hard it was going to be and how it wasn't going to work, <laughs> you know, wow. just by doing it. The learning was in the doing. And so with that, um, and, and with that, with that business now, did that business fly or was this one of those businesses where you learned a lot and then you were able to take, you, you made some progress, learned a lot, and then were able to apply it to the next stupid idea that you helped someone start. That's a great question. It's like, you know, two sides to the same coin. So because of starting that, a center for entrepreneurship was created at my university. Several students, more students were helped in different countries. It's now been endowed and it's helping thousands of people every year. So that's a win. Her organization specifically did well for a couple of years. The problem I had with me going to Mongolia is they saw this American kid and they started raising her prices, thinking she could get more money, like on rents and uh, yarns. It was a, so that's not something I could have ever anticipated. Interesting. That's what I could have even put into a business plan. There's not something I could have ever known. Now they're doing well, and they inspired tons more Mongolians to do their thing. But that business lasted for a couple of years, and then it ended. But it served its purpose. Right. 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 Interesting. So, so fast forward, that's been what, 10 years now ago that you did this? Yeah. So that was, years? yeah, 2004 when that started. I mean, I okay, so, feel like an old man. I am an old man. So <laughs> almost, almost 15 years, almost 15 years ago. That's so, right. so you've, you've learned so many lessons over the last 10 years or 15 years, I should say, what, how do you help people now when they have an idea? What does it, what does it look like? What are the first one or two or three things that you do when someone comes to you and says, Richie, I've got this idea. What do you do? (laughs) That's okay. So it's interesting because after the stupid book came out, I became the stupid guy. So like if you Google stupid Richie, I'm everywhere. And (laughs) <laughs> everyone comes to me with their stupid ideas and I, I quickly realize I can't be the subject matter expert for their thing like I just can't that's their thing it's not mine so I started to become an expert on business models and growing an idea to taking your basically I call it take your stupid idea and turn it into your smart reality 
but 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 because of my experiences of those um, disruptions in my personal life, I always build these businesses and help them build them around their personal goals, their family dreams, because a business can actually become your personal living nightmare if you don't do it right. Dreams become nightmares if you don't tie it to what your real goal is. Because people think a business is actually a way to get somewhere else. So I always say, what's that somewhere else? You're not doing a business to start a business. You're starting a business because you want something. So Mm -hmm. I say two years from now, where do you want to be? With your life, with your family, with finances, with your contribution. Then I say, okay, cool business idea. Let's build it around that outcome. And we focus on the business model by figuring out who actually wants this thing, ask them about it, and then sometimes, a lot of times, pre-sell it and then create it for them. Well, I have to say, I've had, to all of our listeners, I've had the privilege, actually, of collaborating with Richie on a course designed to help high performers take it to the next level. It's called unstuck45.com, and you really, I will say, absolutely practice what you preach, and it was an absolute, Mm. absolute privilege. Um, any final thoughts for us before we wrap up today, Richie? Thank you. I would just like to say, like, in return, Whitney, you are incredible. You walk your talk and you live it. And I've been so inspired by not only your writings, but working with you and talking to you and just, just seeing how you do it. You are so good at seeing opportunities. And even when you might feel like, whoa, should I do this or not? You take that leap of faith. You're a high performer. And you're still like doing things you never thought you might do. And it's, it's just super inspiring. So in disruption parlance <laughs> and dis- disruption parlance, I'm willing to be a silly little thing. Um, so there you go. <laughs> so Richie, thank you so much for being with us. Um, thank you again to our prior guest, Angela Ruggiero. And thank you to all of you for listening. Um, if you enjoyed this episode or want to catch up and talk with us further, it's wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Until next time, I'm Whitney Johnson and you have been listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. Thank you for being a part of Disrupt Yourself Live this week. Remember, our show is broadcast every Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Episodes are always available on demand at the Voice America Business Channel. Please join your host, Whitney Johnson, for another edition next week.